So you're you're going to Asia in October? Where are you off to? Looks like it. We're going to Hawaii, stop at the Pacific Command there, and then off to Tokyo and Seoul. When you get back, you'll have to tell us who's winning the, the food wars these days. I think it was probably Japan for a long time, but South Korea's clearly got at least the better barbecue and, and fried chicken now, maybe some other things too. Right. Japan is now cheaper relative to the U.S. than it was in the 70s. Really? I mean, it's really... Yeah, something has the yen is like it's like almost 150 yen to the dollar, and uh, Japan has had no infl- very little inflation, so it's it's like becoming a bargain destination, which is something I never expected to see. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist of the Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's begin with this week's news. First story of the week. These days, about 23 million, or 45%, of all Americans age 18 to 29 are living with family, roughly the same level as the 1940s, a time when women were more likely to remain at home until marriage and men still lingered on family farms in the aftermath of the Great Depression. For many, according to Bloomberg, the American dream is more like an American illusion, with nearly three-quarters of those surveyed saying younger people are stuck navigating a broken economic situation that prevents them from being financially independent from their parents. Walter, news or phone news? Well, I think that you know, we're going to see a lot of kids moving out from mom and dad one of these days. Uh, you know, The pandemic, I think, probably has a lot more to do with this. A lot of people move back in. You know what? Once you've stopped paying rent, you say, gosh, I need to start spending a couple of grand a month on, on a crappy apartment somewhere. And with student loans and stuff coming back in November, interest rates going up, it's gonna, it's, I think it's going to be tough. But people, young people want to get on with their life. My guess is that uh, those numbers are going to drop. So it's news if if this doesn't change, but for now I'm I'm putting it kind of in the phone news category, but but it's kind of wait and see. So American men are not becoming like uh some societies in the Mediterranean, the Middle East, I know where young men actually want to live with their mothers for as long as possible. You know, the, well now that would be news. That would be news. <laughs> All right. Our second story. The U.S. backed away from some actions meant to stop Iran's oil shipments as Washington and Tehran conducted negotiations that led to the recent release of five Americans, part of a larger step back from sanctions enforcement that has seen Iran's energy exports grow, according to the Wall Street Journal. The release of the five Americans came days after the Biden administration issued a waiver for international banks to release $6 billion in frozen Iranian money. The prisoners returned to the U.S. also followed months of rising Iranian oil shipments, including to China, Iran's biggest buyer, as Washington chose not to aggressively enforce the international sanctions regime. The administration insists there was no quid pro quo on sanctions for the detainees' release. News or phone news? Well, phone news in the sense that what's new in all of this? And, you know, the Biden administration uh, has been doing everything it possibly can to it's be nice to Iran week every week. And I do uh, do kind of, as an American who travels abroad, I find it slightly worrying that the price per American hostage now seems to be about $1.2 billion. 
uh, and that's you know plus a plus you know a bunch of other sanctions relief. I would definitely advise any listeners, especially those who have dual citizenship, do not go to Iran anytime soon, because basically the people, the the officials in Iran will look at you as a walking piggy bank. And there's, there's no rational reason why they wouldn't want to hold you as long as possible. Paying ransom for hostages is just not a good idea. The, you know, the Romans used to be pretty heartless about it. They, they didn't want prisoners of war back. Their feeling was, you allowed yourself to be a taken prisoner. You're not worthy of Rome, <laughs> uh, which was pretty harsh on the, on the people and on their families. But it was, um, it was diplomatically advantageous for Rome. I don't think an American government, especially in a democratic society, either morally should or pragmatically can just ignore the plight of our citizens. The real problem here is less soft-heartedness about captured Americans than just lack of policy toward Iran, I, I think. My guess is that in its heart of hearts, the administration thinks there's very little it can do to prevent Iran from getting a bomb. It thinks the Iranians know that the Americans think that there's very little they can do about getting a bomb. And it's it hopes to delay it. But if we look at the moves it's making to try to establish a um, you know, security relationship, even security treaties with Israel and Saudi Arabia and perhaps some other regional states. This looks like a way of trying to get those states to accept an Iranian bomb, you know, to say to Israel and Saudi Arabia, yeah, we know you don't want Iran to get a bomb, but look, we had NATO and all those European countries, the Soviet Union's had a bomb during the whole Cold War. We'll give you the American nuclear umbrella rather than, because I think for the, for the Biden administration, it's a strong point, really don't think that what the United States rights now needs is a war in the Middle East. All right. Final story of the week. So far, 12 counties in central and eastern Oregon have voted in favor of local ballot measures that compel county leaders to study the idea of moving the Idaho-Oregon border about 270 miles west. The movement envisions 14 full counties joining Idaho, along with parts of others. A 13th county is scheduled to take up the question on the May 2024 ballot. The 14 counties account for less than 10% of Oregon's population, but most of its territory. The push to change the border is rooted in policy differences, according to the Washington Post, and a sense that in Oregon, there will be no way for conservatives to influence the laws and regulations made by the elected representatives of the far more numerous Democratic voters who live on the western side of the Cascades. Is this news or faux news? I don't somehow think that we're, we're going to be having to throw away all of our old maps anytime soon because we have a new boundary for Idaho. Um, the other thing that kind of interests me, you see a little bit of coverage of this story. What you don't hear is, you know, I don't see impassioned marches in downtown Boise, you know, liberate our neighbors, <laughs> free Transcascadian Oregon. I certainly can sympathize with the frustration of facing a permanent majority that has ideas you don't like, but I don't see a lot of change happening anytime soon, nor is there much surprising either about the desire of a bunch of people to get out from under a state government they don't like or their lack of ability to do anything about the situation. Upstate New York would have set up housekeeping on its own a long time ago if this was possible. 
Do you think that's broadly the case with the various other secession or partition movements you hear about from time to time? I mean, in California, you hear about it from the Republicans in San Bernardino County and who want to secede. There's CalExit itself. Texas is perennially nursing fantasies, I think. There's been movements like these in New Hampshire, Illinois, Western Maryland, et cetera. Are, are these all basically faux news? So far, I mean, you know, I'm from South Carolina, so never say never. You're an expert on secession, that's right. Well, I used to think when I was a kid that South Carolina's motto was, if at first you don't secede, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Um, Then I realized that they had a much more subtle form of revenge, which is every year they just elect the politicians the rest of the country would hate the most and send them to Washington. Fine, you wanted us in the union? Well, here's Strom Thurmond for 60 years. <laughs> and when he's finished, we got more. So, um, but I think this is more just people normally letting off steam, plus journalists looking for an easy story. Well, now we've got Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. So even in South Carolina, you can, there, there's change. It's, it's actually quite remarkable that South Carolina should have two Republican presidential candidates that, I mean, when I was a kid, the idea that there were two Republicans in South Carolina would seem pretty unusual. But then the the more conservative of the two South Carolina parties would be represented by non-whites in this very prominent national way. People say things have not changed in terms of racism. They've actually changed quite a bit. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So there's a new survey from Gallup, Walter, and like all polls based on self-reporting, it should be taken with a grain of salt. But the results here are persistent and seem worth discussing. So Gallup's been asking Americans the following question since 1979, quote, in general, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are going in your personal life, end quote. In 2023, the portion of surveyed Americans who reported feeling satisfied with the way things are going in their personal lives is 83%, which is comfortably within the steady range of personal satisfaction Americans have reported every year to Gallup for the last 44 years with a low of 73% and a high of 90. And not only that, but the sources of Americans reported satisfaction are, are also interesting. 66% are satisfied with their family life, 63% with their current housing, 53% with their education, 51% with their local community, and 54% with their current job. The categories that reported more dissatisfaction were in leisure time, personal health, standard of living, and household income. But adding in those who reported somewhat satisfied, even in these categories, no area dropped below 71% satisfaction. Now, I saw the economist James Pethokoukos made the joke that the people surveyed by Gallup clearly must not be aware that they're living under late-stage capitalism and suffering under the boot of the oligarchy, the joke being at the expense of both the progressive left and the new right. But I think the serious point behind the joke, which is what I want to ask you about, is whether it's actually the case that the vast majority of Americans are in fact more or less doing okay, especially relative to recent history. And it's really just the overeducated, highly neurotic elites in media, in politics, entertainment, academia, maybe journalism especially, who are totally miserable and convinced that the country is falling apart. What what do you think about that? I think it's basically 
Right. We have a lot of problems in the United States, and there are a lot of things about daily life that we don't like. But you ask a big question like that, you know, um, are you satisfied? That doesn't mean, am I annoyed with my boss? Or um, does my sister-in-law's cooking drive me absolutely crazy? Let, let me hasten to say that my sisters-in-law are all excellent cooks. <laughs> and I, I will happily eat whatever they serve as often as I can get it. This, that's not the same question as, do you, you know, is there anything that bothers you? And this, I think, may also represent you know, the, this contrast. Then you ask other polls, ask the question, do you think the country's heading in the right direction? And you get an, really almost a flip of that with well past 70% often saying country's headed in the wrong direction. Right. So in that sense, the first question is the question is, how do you feel about yourself and your friends and family? And the other question is, how do you feel about other people? <laughs> and it's interesting that, that I think the way our society is set up, it's actually through politics that you most directly confront the presence and the power of people who see the world differently than you do. People often talk about how we've sorted ourselves into neighborhoods and regions where, you know, most of the people who live around you are likely to share your general views. I mean, you living in uh, Los Angeles are probably a bit of an exception. I I think there's probably a little bit more red showing in the Stern household than in some of the neighborhoods. Uh, some others in the neighborhood. But also, you know, in a lot of our interactions with corporations and entertainment, I don't watch the entertainment I don't like. I watch what I want to watch. And so, you know, and, and once is, do I like what I'm watching on Netflix? Yes. Do I think there are things on Netflix that ought not to be there? Yes. Right. You can be both satisfied and dissatisfied at the same time. And do I think the people that are watching this other show are bad people? Well, yes. Yes, I do. But what happens is that in politics, you as, as the sovereign consumer who gets to shape your own life experience through choice, interacting with people that you like, finding a job where the other people in your workplace are kind, in some way like you, going to sports events with other people who like the same team that you like, and, you know, like you argue violently about should they fire the manager or not, but, you know, there's basically, it's, it's within a kind of a consensus. But in politics, what you realize is that there are people in the country who don't want what you want, who are not like you in some sense, and so the House of Representatives isn't passing this bill, which to you seems like total common sense. So, you, for example, you live in New in Manhattan, and you know the idea of a twenty-five dollar an hour minimum wage sort of makes a lot of sense, as you would be starving dead on the street if you tried to live in Manhattan in on anything less than twenty-five or even more an hour. It's just impossible. While if you live in rural Mississippi, you know, 725 might even seem a little high for a minimum wage. So what happens is that in your immediate surroundings, you're, you've got people who share your idea of what's common sense and what isn't, 
But in, in the country as a whole, you've got people who have a different take that comes out of different experience. And in our, in our political system is where all of this gets stirred up together. When you deal with a corporation, not all of our dealings with corporations are pleasant, but generally speaking, they're trying to make it relatively easy for you because you're the customer. So they spend a lot of time and even invest in you know, trying to make that customer experience better. And if you take in something to complain or whatever, they don't say, well, what an idiot you are. You know, can't you read the instructions, you fool? You know, they, they sort of try to make you feel good and they want you to go away happy, whatever. All right. In politics, though, people will try to stir you up by talking about how terrible the other side is, how they're fighting for you, how difficult it is. So the negative emotions are often centered on the political process and on the interface with people who, again, with that other group of people. And the contrast then between your own life where things seem to be going reasonably well most of the time, we all mostly get along, we all think the same way, and then this inexplicably difficult thing of politics, while in spite of everything, they don't pass the simplest, most rational gun law, or alternatively, you know, they, they can't recognize marriage equality as foundational to, you know, whatever it may be, right? something that just seems obvious to you these other people don't have. So the contrast between the pol a political system of, of stress and conflict and a personal ecosystem of a life of you know, reasonably smooth interactions and reasonably positive ones, I think does help stir us up. And to, to people who spend half their waking moments on the website formerly known as Twitter, uh, they're constantly sort of you know, dealing with these dark emotions. But I bet most of them then get off Twitter and are like, you know, nice to see that their kid has had a good day at school or enjoy a moment of cuddling with the cat or whatever it might be. And just, I mean, one follow-up there, like, you know, let's say for a moment, there is something to the idea of, uh, you know, there's a solid majority of Americans that at least in their personal and family and communal lives are doing pretty well. We're doing fine. And really it's members of the elite, however you want to define it, that kind of whipped itself into a pseudo revolutionary frenzy, whether on the, on the kind of socialist left or the, whatever you want to call it, post-liberal, uh, illiberal right. I mean, like looking back through history, even in the major democracies, how much does it matter if, if a critical mass of ordinary people is doing fine? Aren't, you know, my impression of the kind of cliche maybe mostly comes from Europe that revolutions are always driven by very dissatisfied, often very neurotic elites kind of jockeying for positions in, in the culture or the economy. I think it's almost always the case that elites are, tend to be neurotic and competitive and uh, seeking advantage that, you know, otherwise you would just be sitting around enjoying yourself, enjoying your life. You know, the, the question would be, you know, why sometimes does this elite dysfunction ignite huge conflagrations? And, and, but most of the time, it's just a bunch of people yelling at each other in a fancy Paris salon, right? No guillotines involved. And I, think I guess then that's the, yeah, that's a great point. So I guess the, my question really is, are we in one of those kind of, you know, meaningless lobbing crap at each other, uh, eras, or is this kind of seem like, a something potentially more explosive? 
I think real changes are happening in America, and they're difficult. And people know this and worry about it. Again, you've got everything ranging from climate change to nuclear war hanging out there as this kind of grim background to things. And you've got people, you know, perhaps worried about their jobs, worried about their bills or whatever. And that makes people hungry for narratives of change and also needing change. Change is going to happen. It looks to me as if the um, self-driving cars, which were first about to happen and then not going to happen ever, now look like they're kind of getting ready to happen again. Well, that's a lot of people are, are going to lose jobs if that happens. And a lot of other people are going to have much nicer lives, be able to uh, surf, you know, wh- do Twitter even while they're behind the wheel of their car. Things are going to change. Change is distressing. I don't think we are anywhere near kind of French revolutionary conditions, uh, even like chartism of London. We used to have big demonstrations during COVID. It's interesting, once the lockdown stopped, the huge demonstrations became uh, much less prevalent. You tell a bunch of young people, you, you know, the only legitimate reason for you to go out and get together and hang out with other people is a protest march. We're going to have a lot of protest marches. Um, now you can just go hang out. So it's, it's um, you know, no, no social, great social problems have been solved since the end of the great pandemic. All of the late capitalist nightmares are with us just as much as they were during the lockdowns, but people are responding in a very different way. So yes, big changes need to happen, are happening. There is this, we talked last week about the conflict between the sort of upper middle class, credentialed professional administrators, managers, those folks, and and people who feel dissed and otherwise poorly represented and led by those folks. That's real, it's there. So politics is going to continue. But I'm not at the moment, I I don't have a go bag packed for the Netherlands for, uh, you know, where I can claim political asylum if things get worse. All right. That does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. You're off to Japan soon, Walter, and I'll be in Tokyo and Kanazawa myself in November. I know you've been at least a few times before to Japan, so give us your number one travel tip for the country. Have an expense account. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Japan right now, they tell me Japan is a lot cheaper than it used to be because the yen is weak and there has not been as much inflation in Japan as some other countries. But I can remember the first time I went to Japan was back in the 1980s. And fortunately for me, I was there as a guest of the Japanese government. They were um, very much worried about American public opinion. Uh, You know, this was the age of the big Japanese trade surpluses and the Japanese were going to destroy us and, you know, own everything. And I think the Imperial Palace grounds in Tokyo were said to be more valuable than the entire state of California. So... Huge paranoia on our side, and the Japanese were trying to tamp this down. And one of the things they did was they invited young, but not necessarily well-known, which would have described me at that time, writers, to Japan. Come get to know us. Japan is your friend. Well, I went over there, and 
you know, at the time, things like a $15 hamburger were pretty shocking, or uh, a trip from the airport to your hotel would cost more than I might make in a week back in the United States. So I was very happy to have the Japanese government. I felt I was, you know, doing my part to claw back the trade surplus. <laughs> <laughs> I thought if everybody in America worked as hard as I did, we could even this thing out. Um, but it really, I mean, it, it is a wonderful country. It is, if you can go to Kyoto, I don't know if you've been, but it, it is just a beautiful city. The Japanese government very nicely gave, sent me to Kyoto with a, um, a tour guide who was an expert in art and architecture, Japanese. So it was the kind of person you could, you know, you could say, well, why does this, why is this statue going like this? And this statue is going like that. And he would be able to tell you. So try. It's one of the great luxuries, small luxuries you can do in travel is hire a personal guide for muse- You know, really important museums or historical sites. And it's amazing how rich that experience can be. So go, enjoy, uh, try to have somebody else pay for it, and get a really good guide who can help explain what you're seeing. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.